0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 160, Decisions, Decisions. Last week, I spent the first part of the episode reintroducing the new economic policy, the NEP, and why it was introduced and the reasons it was controversial among the Soviet leadership. This ideological retreat towards a market economy spurned a great deal of debate all through the 1920s, and for a time split the Communist Party into left and right factions even though, per-Lenin, factions have been banned since the early 20s, but whatever. The left would favor winding down the NEP and replacing it with state interventionism and the central planning of the economy. Meanwhile, on the right, they believed that managed state capitalism could produce economic growth and development more quickly and with less growing pain. Initially, the champions on the left were Trotsky and his supporters, but opponents of the NEP also included men like Kamenev and Zinoviev. The latter two might have aligned with Trotsky over economics, but their political rivalries and mutual hatreds prevented them from working together until their economic preferences had become distant concerns in the midst of their falls from power. By the last few years of the 1920s, it really did seem as though the right was triumphant, and that wing of the party, as I mentioned last week, was led by Bukharin, Rykov, and Tomsky. All three held important positions, with Rykov actually being in charge of the bureaucracy of the USSR at the time, and Tomsky being the leading voice of the industrial trade unions. But when I talk about the right, I'm mostly going to be referring to Bukharin. He was far and away the most prominent, he held the most sway in the party, and was the most intelligent of the bunch. So much so that he was considered to be Lenin's intellectual heir, which went a long way in inducing many party members to defer to his wisdom. His big problem was that the NEP, which he supported, was rapidly creating distortions and problems that he hadn't properly reckoned with. When the NEP rolled out in early 1921, it quickly liberalized large segments of the Soviet economy. While the heavy industries remained under the watchful eye of the central government, smaller enterprises were allowed and even encouraged. Salesmen established shops that actually handled the sale of goods to customers, and large segments of the service industry went into private hands. This gave rise to the nep-men that I covered back in episode 101 and reintroduced last week. They were your typical capitalistic bunch and took full advantage of the opening the state gave them to build their fortunes. This also led to their conspicuous consumption, including fine cars, fine food, fine clothes, all that stuff. It was something of an embarrassment from a social angle, because while they certainly accumulated capital, becoming the living piggy banks the state wanted, they were lightning rods for public disgust. Their displays of affluence in what was still an intensely poor nation conjured the bitter memories of the Tsarist regime's decadent favorites, and started getting people to question the revolutionary line they had supported if it was all to hand the benefits over to men like them. After the middle of the decade, the Nepmen did start to come under siege from a hostile government, but they remained a factor in the economy even after the licenses of many to do business were revoked. A much larger problem, though, was coming out of the countryside. The peasantry had been organized since time immemorial into their communes, and after the October Revolution, they had been encouraged by the government to seize the lands of the Great Estates and the bourgeois landholders which the peasants did with gusto. They absolutely gobbled up the larger holdings of the nation and leveled out the social status of those living in the countryside enormously. However, once this initial uh, restructuring had been accomplished, the communes resumed their existence as much as they had before. Everybody had their own holdings that they managed, while the leaders of the commune here and there made adjustments to who farmed what so that the most desperate could get enough land to support themselves. It was a conservative way of managing the tens of millions of small farms across the USSR, and it also meant that the vast majority of holdings earned too little for farmers to modernize properly. This meant that the growing of crops continued to be used with tools dating back to the early 1800s, and while it did produce significant enough yields, it was also manpower and man-hour intensive. From an early stage, this offended the sensibilities of the Bolsheviks, who desired modernized, efficient agriculture, traditional peasant culture bedamned. Unfortunately, the Russian Civil War absolutely poisoned the well when it came to relations between the new state and the peasantry. The government was simply too preoccupied with survival to even set up a functioning government apparatus in the countryside. So the peasants were largely left to their own devices, at first, the farmers looked at the poultry payments that the state was offering for their crops and decided, uh, thanks, but no thanks. They'd rather store their grain and wait for conditions to change and they could get maybe a better return later. The fate of their starving countrymen in the cities was of little concern to a segment of people who had precious few connections with the wider world outside their commune this probably would have spelt the end of Bolshevik Russia as we have come to know it and probably would have left Russia a completely failed state given the weakness and corruption of the alternative white faction. Except that Lenin and the the others didn't allow that to happen. They sent in the Red Army and Cheka to start collecting grain by force if need be. It was a chaotic policy born of pure desperation, but the cities were fed on at least survival rations and the communist state survived the civil war. The requisition campaigns, though, resulted in revolts and a massive famine that killed in the neighborhood of 5 million people. It was this disaster that really spurned the NEP into being. The peasants would be left alone after 1921 and would pay their tax to the state in grain, which would be used to feed the cities and for export abroad. Outside of their basic quota, farmers were allowed to manage their operations as they saw fit. Bukharin himself would early on give an instruction that would come back to haunt him when he told the peasants to, quote-unquote, enrich themselves. And this freedom meant that the more enterprising peasants, meaning the wealthier ones, built more complex operations. They mechanized their labor, raised cattle and livestock that would deliver higher profits, diversified their crops from grain, which would, again, be sold for more, bought land and hired hands to better operate their holdings, and even got into the business of selling equipment and supplies to other farmers. These were the kulaks I talked about last season, and they would become quite the sticking point. In this system, the excess production of the farmers could be sold in open internal markets, uh, which caused a great deal of concern among the communists because of the independent nature of the farmers now. The NEP had not been instituted because Lenin liked the idea of free markets in the countryside, It had been instituted because an exhausted Bolshevik government lacked the means to exert its power in the countryside and a compromise was needed in order to peacefully induce the peasants to resume farming normally. This left the countryside out of the government's grip. Oh, sure, there were representatives and the party pushed for education and propaganda drives to spread their message outside of the cities. But ultimately, the state's influence on rural affairs was weak during the 20s. And as the Soviet Union managed to steady itself during that decade, many in the leadership questioned why the, that state of affairs should continue. And while the liberalization of agriculture was the most important facet of the NAP, the men and their smaller operations in the cities proved to be the first domino in unraveling the whole system. The men were also the guys who went out into the countryside and bought up the products the peasants were selling, whether that was grain, fruit, vegetables, meat, or eggs, or what have you. That food went to their grocery stores, while the nep-men in turn sold the peasants' consumer goods. An issue became that the factories didn't produce enough consumer goods, mostly on account of there not being enough factories in general, which meant those items increased in price due to shortages. Meanwhile, the productive peasants kind of shot themselves in the foot because their abundance of crops drove the prices they sold at downwards. This was the scissors crisis I brought up last season, where the price of agricultural goods went down, the, the manufactured goods went up, and if you superimpose them on the graph, they kind of made scissors. Yeah, clever. But the uh, peasants uh, responded as they did during the Civil War. They'd simply hang on to their produce and simply do without consumer goods, preferring to wait for conditions to become better. Farmers, after all, were still very self-sufficient. If need be, they could do without manufactured goods or stretch out their use to where they made purchases very seldomly. And then, when the state started constricting the operations of the Nepmen in the middle of the decade, the situation was only made worse. The peasants did not trust the Soviet government on account of the miseries suffered during and after the requisition campaigns, and they vastly preferred to do business with the Nepmen. And when those merchants stopped showing up, the peasants didn't take the government up on their purchase offers. The amount of food reaching the city started to decline, creating a mounting crisis that became critical in late 1927. Through the mid-twenties, a follower of Trotsky's named Yevgeny Priobrazhinsky, who would repent his association with Trotsky by the end of the decade, but not his economic stances, had been howling that state planning was necessary. In his view, the NEP had certainly increased agricultural production and overall economic activity, but the barriers it began to hit up against were predictable ones. Industrial expansion was necessary to construct manufactured goods cheaply enough and in sufficient quantities to prevent stagnation in the economy. The bottleneck of industrial expansion couldn't be overcome without massive government intervention, And the only way that the factories could be staffed was by drawing the excess labor out of the countryside. And the only way to do that in the face of the resistance of the communes was to break them apart, consolidate the farms under state direction and modernize them, and direct the resulting unemployed to the new factory jobs. This was a mammoth task and would be the basic outline of the first five-year plan. And it was a direct rejection of Bukharin's more laissez-faire economic stance. In the eyes of Priobrzezinski, the problem of agriculture's backwardness was only a symptom of a greater disease that required treatment, and if the Soviet Union's economy was to be modernized, that could only be accomplished by a complete overhaul of the economy following a standardized blueprint. Industrialization on a grand scale would benefit all in his eyes, as the wealth derived from agriculture would be concentrated in fewer hands, making them far more reliable consumers while the new generation of the urban proletariat would themselves create their own demand for goods. And once a critical mass had been achieved in the industrial sector and enough facilities were in place that the USSR no longer had to rely on foreign imports for manufacturing equipment, this could become self-perpetuating. This would also place industry and agriculture both in state hands, allowing for a more even distribution of the nation's wealth, fulfilling the socialist promise of the revolution. By the fall of 1926, Bukharin was forced to descend from his economic perch and admit that Prio Brzezinski had a point, that an industrial intervention was required. But he rejected an initial emphasis of heavy industry investment as too costly and disruptive priyo envisioned that the first several years of industrial expansion would be focused on the heavy industries of the country, expanding the production of steelmaking, heavy equipment, industrial machine tools, building materials needed to construct still more factories, and everything needed to sustain the infrastructure supporting all of this. It would be hugely expensive and not immediately profitable. A plant producing industrial equipment might be invaluable to setting up a factory to make consumer goods afterwards, but it doesn't actually itself put appliances in people's homes. And these industries would take time to set up in addition to the huge investment required. What I'm getting at is that consumers were going to be neglected for an indefinite period of time while the first phase was completed, and Bukharin wasn't having it. If the NEP was failing due to a shortage of consumer goods, Priyo approach would only make it worse. Fearing the disruptions it would cause, he called for a balanced approach allowing for some heavy industrial projects, but focusing on consumer goods producing light industries as those would have more upfront profits. Those profits could then be reinvested for further development. While some on the right grumbled at the partial about-face, Bukharin leaned on them to go along with the new platform. After all, If Priyo plan was a full-on second revolution, Bukharin's was a far more careful evolution. Moreover, there was the argument over where all the money should come from to pay for either strategy. Priyo plan was obviously far more expensive. He proposed that agriculture wouldn't just be modernized, but that all peasants not transferred to the new factories would be socialized to where they became wage earners. In this manner, similar to how factory workers were ultimately employed by the state, They, too, would become employees. The excess value of their labor would go into paying for the industrial expansion. Yes, this would require a sacrifice, as the position of the employed would be scarcely better than someone toiling under capital, but the eventual establishment of industry that would, at some point, start delivering affordable goods in bulk to the consumers was the end goal. From there, the pressures exerted by the state could be slackened, and the full bounty of each worker's labor could be enjoyed. Cynically, you could say that this was all just cover to disenfranchise the workers and the peasants just as badly as the capitalists did, but as we'll cover in the future, a big reason why people endured the harsh conditions of the coming years was that they understood they were building something big, something grand, something that would make the lives of succeeding generations easier. The key to Priyo reasoning, though, was to basically draw surplus value, specifically from the peasants, especially at the early stages, and Bukharin was not happy about that. He argued that the peasants wouldn't just robotically go along with their whole world being turned upside down and having to make sacrifices for a future they themselves were uninterested in which Bukharin was right about that. Once collectivization got underway in just a couple of years, the peasants did not take the transition well at all. He reasoned instead that setting artificially low consumer goods prices and favoring the supply of the countryside first would accomplish two things. One, it would encourage the peasantry to sell their produce at fairer prices without hoarding, and two, stimulate demand for consumer goods that would more naturally encourage industries. Encouraging the production of modern farming tools at low cost would also boost food production, helping out the cities immeasurably. The problem for Bukharin's line of reasoning, though, was that time and patience was steadily running out, although he wasn't able to perceive this. Events abroad during 1927 would send the leadership of the party into a tizzy, and even after the events of that year had passed, the feeling among the party was that decisive, downright wartime measures, as advocated by Prior Brzezinski, would be essential to the future of the Union. Despite the Soviet Union's isolation from the world, that didn't mean that foreign considerations couldn't interject from time to time. You might remember from last season that 1927 was a very special year for early paranoia within the Soviet Union. Specifically, it was the year that Chiang Kai-shek dumpstered the CPC and broke relations with the Soviets, while across Europe, crackdowns on communist parties yielded damning material on the USSR's network of foreign influence. The UK broke off relations, and for months, the Soviet leadership was gripped in a paranoid fear over a foreign invasion. Multiple scenarios were conjured, from simple economic blockades from the UK, to that nation sponsoring a coalition of the USSR's western neighbors, to even a war with Japan in the Far East. It was a crazy time, and it forced everybody to take a long, hard look at where they stood vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And the conclusions were not positive. If the USSR were attacked from a sustained, large, outside force, then the Red Army wasn't too poor of a shape to offer reliable resistance, and the country's industrial base and infrastructure network was insufficient to support a modern war effort. They could fight defensively and draw their enemies into the vast interior of the country— but that was their strongest card, and it did not sit well with Stalin and the others. If the only thing holding a potential enemy back was its own lack of ability to to, uh, traverse the long road to Moscow, then that would not speak highly of the communists' legitimacy as leaders. While the war scare period passed with no conflict, the conventional wisdom was that some kind of capitalist onslaught was inevitable. The most notable commander of the Red Army at the time was Mikhail Tukachevsky, who despite Stalin's strong dislike of him going back to the Russo-Polish War, still maintained a high degree of influence over military affairs. Tukhachevsky personally did not express concern over a war in 1927, but recognized that it would take a decade of buildup for the Red Army to reliably overcome even its immediate neighbors to the West, despite them being far smaller nations. He pushed during the war scare period for a special sub-bureau in Gosplan, plan, which again is the interim ministry bureau I mentioned last week that actually devised plans for the commissariats to execute. The proposed sub-bureau would oversee the expansion of industries related to the military. By 1927, the Red Army stood at a peacetime strength of 600,000 with a mere 60 tanks and barely 700 aircraft. The military sub-bureau of Goss plan would include in the five-year plan targets for an expansion of 1,500 tanks immediately on hand for war with up to 4,000 in reserve to follow in waves upon mobilization. The Red Army Air Force would have 2,000 modern planes on immediate hand with up to 1,500 waiting in reserve. The army would be bumped up to 3 million men. And these were just the initial proposals. The plan would increase yearly production targets many times over, reaching a dizzying degree of overproduction. And even then, Tukhachevsky would start throwing around proposals in the early 30s for an army of 11 million men and production quotas of 50,000 tanks and 40,000 aircraft a year, with his numbers inflating into the hundreds of thousands yearly. This proposal was too much even for Stalin. The economy under the worst excesses of rapid industrialization couldn't have borne that kind of strain. And peacetime production never got close to those numbers. But it does show how military production was always on the minds of Soviet leaders. When Priyo spoke of prioritizing heavy industry, this also meant that the military would be getting facilities of their own to produce quantities of munitions that Russia, or the rest of the world for that matter, had never seen up to that point. And even civilian facilities were constructed with potential military conversion in mind. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but when the Soviets set up tractor factories for example, they built tractors that had a lot of parts, design aspects, and construction techniques in common with tanks, which would help ease a future conversion. The panic of the USSR's military situation was just one part that contributed towards a radical 5 year plan. By the end of 1927, the food situation was starting to become critical, as the peasants hoarded their produce in the face of low prices being offered by the state and overly expensive consumer goods driving down consumption. At the end of 1927, the amount of grain being put on the open market was just half that compared to a year previous. The state had few options available to them. Funds weren't on hand to pay for a higher price for the grain, and there weren't enough consumer goods on hand to reverse course and ply the peasants with something to trade. This led in January 1928 to the Politburo agreeing to take the extraordinary measure of reinstituting requisitions, something that had not been done in the past seven years and which Bukharin and the right were loath to do. The grain crisis, though, was clear and present, and they had no immediate solution to a problem that had to be addressed right away. Bucharin and his allies gave their consent to the requisitions as a temporary measure born out of desperation and then they kind of stood aside. This is all ground I covered in the finale of the Soviet miniseries from last season so I'll be covering it very very sketchily here. Uh, Stalin and his team notably Mikoyan, Molotov, and Kaganovich fanned out across the Union and impressed on local officials and members of the OGPU, the secret police, that grain had to be collected one way or the other and that included at gunpoint or after mass arrests. Stalin, who had personally traveled to Siberia, sat the party bosses in the region down and explained to them that collectivization was coming, so they better be ready for it. This would have been quite the surprise because the Politburo had not given their overall say-so to that idea and the right was very much still against going that far. And in fact, once the worst of the crisis had passed, the right members of the Politburo managed to call off the requisitions and even forced Stalin to concede that many of the grain collecting operations had been overzealous. Indeed, McGowan was made to declare that the requisitions had been harmful, unlawful, and inadmissible. But whatever optimism that Bukharin had of reining in the anti-NEP impulses of the party, uh, they were misplaced. The shaky truce that had been established by the NEP was broken, and the peasants started withholding more and more grain. This broke down the entire system and ensured that despite their official suspension, requisitions would continue on an ad hoc basis all across the USSR until late 1929, when the conflict between the state and the communes went out into the open. Politically, it also signaled a break. Unbeknownst to Bukharin, Rykov, and Tomsky, Stalin had gotten what he wanted from his right-wing comrades and was ready to jettison them. The liquidation of the left and united oppositions had been completed by the end of 1927, and with them out of the way, Stalin turned on his last set of independent allies. While he had supported the right-wing stance during their partnership, Stalin turned around and adopted most of the left platform, which had been previously champ- championed by acolytes of Trotsky like Priyo Brzezinski. Stalin got away with reversing his position for two reasons. One, through all the factionalism, he personally had avoided taking too hard a stance, never committing too far to one platform. He framed his support of the NEP in the past as simply following Lenin's will, which was convenient as Lenin had always said the NEP was a temporary measure. Second reason, and this is the more important one, was that Stalin, in rejecting the NEP, was tapping into the anxieties and aspirations of both the party and much of the urban proletariat at large. The NEP had certainly boosted economic numbers, but people were not satisfied with just numbers. They genuinely wanted a real revolution. The Civil War had been a nightmare, but those early days had been dizzying with possibility. People had felt like they could move mountains, affect real change, The ones who had lived it wanted that feeling back. Those too young and only then entering their primes wanted a revolution to call their own. Capital had managed to sink its hooks back into the country thanks to the NAP, and that meant it was there to be smashed all over again. And many weren't afraid of taking on the challenge of a maximalist version of rapid industrialization— Either thanks to education on the topic or simple propaganda, it was understood, better than we in the present might realize, that the process was not going to be a spring picnic. Real sacrifices were going to be demanded, and people were going to have to make do with a lot less in order to build up their proletarian utopia. Now, this doesn't mean they all expected conditions to get as bad as they got, nor did they expect a catastrophic outbreak of state paranoia later on but they understood that they were the ones being called upon to build something that had never been seen before. There was a sense of destiny in the air as the 30s approached, and word from on high became more focused and committed to that cause. The focus, of course, came about because Bukharin and the right were cleared out of their positions, and Stalin's clique consolidated their power. But most normal people paid leadership shuffles little mind. Uh, You might also have noticed I was very specific in saying that the urban proletariat was on board with pushing the nation to its very limits. The peasantry was uh, far uh, leerier about what was expected of them in the coming years, and the state did look upon them as a problem to be addressed as opposed to being partners in revolution as found in the cities. The divide between the communes and the state were simply too far to be bridged, and as Stalin consolidated power within the party and the government apparatus, He knew damn well that if he wanted to create a reborn Soviet Union in his image, that those communes were going to have to be dismantled. Stalin's turn towards a hardline industrialization plan sped up the inevitable breach with Bukharin. By the late spring of 1928, the split was out in the open, at least within the party, and Stalin's people and the right were jockeying against each other over that spring and summer. I covered the course of this again back in episode 110, and for our purposes, just keep in mind that while the right possessed an impressive base of support in the party and the state bureaucracy, Stalin had been placing his people into secondary and lower positions for the past seven years. Even where the right was strong, there would be Stalinist dissenters obstructing their attempts at securing spots in the committees and ministries. Then, on September 19, 1928, Kubishev threw down the gauntlet and made rapid industrialization centered around heavy industry, the centerpiece of the Stalinist line. Both the right and the Stalinists were under pressure to present their visions, and Bukharin offered up a platform of balanced development, with a gradual shift to collective farms, with industrial expansion tied to what could be afforded, a nice, polite middle ground and Bukharin's opinions were actually respected when the first five-year plan was adopted on October 1st, 1928. Except that part of the reason that I'm treating the five-year plan as a kind of nebulous catch-all for the upcoming national overhaul is because that's exactly how the Soviets treated it too. I'll be getting into how the plan actually started being executed next week, but long story short, the initial targets were excessively modest compared to where they ended up. Once things actually got underway and upon seeing what was actually possible, and as the right continued to be dismantled, Stalin's click upped the ante over and over again and changed their goals. The point wasn't to meet whatever objective was in place that given day, the point was to wring whatever bit of productive energy they could out of the Soviet Union and then try to find a way to get more. As it turned out, Bukharin and the right simply didn't understand the potential of the state they had helped create for good or bad. They underestimated the capability of the Soviet people to subsume themselves to a goal greater than themselves, and they underestimated how powerful the state apparatus could be in executing a vision once settled upon. Their great failing, and part of why they were consigned to the outer margins of the history books, was their moderation and tying themselves too closely to an economic plan that was both transitory and ultimately at odds with the very ideology of the state. The contradictions of the NEP could not be overcome, and it proved to be an albatross to the right. And with the right's leaders being reduced to shadows of their former selves within the upper strata of the Soviet leadership, the way was now clear for maximalism to take center stage. Next week, we kick off the first five-year plan properly and begin the long story of collectivization. After all, if a key part of rapid industrialization was based on labor being freed up in the countryside and sent to the cities, we might as well begin there to discuss how that was actually accomplished. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.